This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Drinkwater in Madison, Wisconsin, January 5th, 2008. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 3, Chapter 8, Part 1. My tongue hath but a heavier tale to say. I play the torture by small and small to lengthen out the worst that must be spoken. Richard the Second. We now return for a moment to Venice, where Count Morano was suffering under an accumulation of misfortunes. Soon after his arrival in that city, he had been arrested by order of the Senate and, without knowing of what he was suspected, was conveyed to a place of confinement whither the most strenuous enquiries of his friends had been unable to trace him. Who the enemy was that had occasioned him this calamity he had not been able to guess, unless, indeed, it was Montigny, on whom his suspicions rested, and not only with much apparent probability, but with justice. In the affair of the poisoned cup, Montigny had suspected Murano, but being unable to obtain the degree of proof which was necessary to convict him of a guilty intention, he had recourse to means of other revenge than he could hope to obtain by prosecution. He employed a person, in whom he believed he might confide, to drop a letter of accusation into denunzie secret, or lion's mouth, which are fixed in a gallery of the doge's palace, as receptacles for anonymous information concerning persons who may be disaffected towards the state. As, on these occasions, the accuser is not confronted with the accused, a man may falsely impeach his enemy, and accomplish an unjust revenge, without fear of punishment or detection. That Montigny should have recourse to these diabolical means of ruining a person whom he suspected of having attempted his life is not in the least surprising. In the letter which he had employed as the instrument of his revenge, he accused Murano of designs against the state, which he attempted to prove with all the plausible simplicity of which he was master. And the Senate with whom suspicion was, at that time, almost equal to a proof, arrested the Count, in consequence of this accusation, and, without even hinting to him his crime, threw him into one of those secret prisons which were the terror of the Venetians, and in which persons often languished and sometimes died without being discovered by their friends. Morano had incurred the personal resentment of many members of the state. His habits of life had rendered him obnoxious to some, and his ambition, and the bold rivalship which he discovered on several public occasions, to others. And it was not to be expected that mercy would soften the rigor of a law which was to be dispensed from the hands of his enemies. Montigny, Meantime, was beset by dangers of another kind. 
His castle was besieged by troops who seemed willing to dare everything, and to suffer patiently any hardships in pursuit of victory. The strength of the fortress, however, withstood their attack, and this, with the vigorous defense of the garrison, and the scarcity of provision on these wild mountains, soon compelled the assailants to raise the siege. When Udolpho was once more left to the quiet possession of Montagny, he dispatched Ugo into Tuscany for Emily, whom he had sent, from considerations of her personal safety, to a place of greater security than a castle, which was, at that time, liable to be overrun by his enemies. Tranquility being once more restored to Udolpho, he was impatient to secure her again under his roof, and had commissioned Ugo to assist Bertrand in guarding her back to the castle. Thus compelled to return, Emily bade the kind Madalena farewell, with regret, and, after about a fortnight's stay in Tuscany, where she had experienced an interval of quiet, which was absolutely necessary to sustain her long-harassed spirits, began once more to ascend the Apennine from whose heights she gave a long and sorrowful look into the beautiful country that extended at their feet, and to the distant Mediterranean, whose waves she had so often wished would bear her back to France. The distress she felt on her return towards the place of her former sufferings was, however, softened by a conjecture that Valancourt was there, and she found some degree of comfort in the thought of being near him notwithstanding the consideration that he was probably a prisoner. It was noon when she had left the cottage, and the evening was closed long before she came within the neighborhood of Udolpho. There was a moon, but it shone only at intervals, for the night was cloudy, and, lighted by the torch which Ugo carried, the travelers paced silently along, Emily musing on her situation, and Bertrand and Ugo anticipating the comforts of a flask of wine and a good fire, for they had perceived for some time the difference between the warm climate of the lowlands of Tuscany and the nipping air of these upper regions. Emily was, at length, roused from her reverie by the far-off sound of the castle clock, to which she listened not without some degree of awe as it rolled away on the breeze. Another and another note succeeded, and died in sullen murmur among the mountains. To her mournful imagination, it seemed a knell measuring out some fateful period for her. Ay, there is the old clock, said Bertrand. There he is still. The cannon have not silenced him. No, answered Ugo. He crowed as loud as the best of them in the midst of it all. There he was, roaring out in the hottest fire I have seen this many a day. I said that some of them would have had a hit at the old fellow, but he escaped, and the tower too. The road winding round the base of a mountain, they now came within view of the castle, which was shewn in the perspective of the valley by a gleam of moonshine and then vanished in shade. 
while even a transient view of it had awakened the poignancy of Emily's feelings. Its massy and gloomy walls gave her terrible ideas of imprisonment and suffering. Yet, as she advanced, some degree of hope mingled with her terror. For, though this was certainly the residence of Montigny, it was possibly, also, that of Valancourt, and she could not approach a place where he might be without experiencing somewhat of the joy of hope. They continued to wind along the valley, and, soon after, she saw again the old walls and moonlit towers rising over the woods. The strong rays enabled her, also, to perceive the ravages which the siege had made, with the broken walls and shattered battlements, for they were now at the foot of the steep on which Udolpho stood. Massy fragments had rolled down among the woods, through which the travelers now began to ascend, and there mingled with the loose earth and pieces of rock they had brought with them. The woods, too, had suffered much from the batteries above, for here the enemy had endeavored to screen themselves from the fire of the ramparts. Many noble trees were leveled with the ground, and others, to a wide extent, were entirely stripped of their upper branches. We had better dismount, said Ugo, and lead the mules up the hill, or we shall get into some of the holes which the balls have left. Here are plenty of them. Give me the torch, continued Ugo, after they had dismounted, and take care you don't stumble over anything that lies in your way, for the ground is not yet cleared of the enemy. How? exclaimed Emily. Are any of the enemy here, then? Nay, I don't know for that now, he replied, but when I came away I saw one or two of them lying under the trees. As they proceeded, the torch threw a gloomy light upon the ground, and far among the recesses of the woods. And Emily feared to look forward, lest some object of horror should meet her eye. The path was often strewn with broken heads of arrows and the shattered remains of armor, such as at that period mingled with the lighter dress of the soldiers. Bring the light hither, said Bertrand. I have stumbled over something that rattles loud enough. Ugo, holding up the torch, they perceived the steel breastplate on the ground, which Bertrand raised, and they saw that it was pierced through, and that the lining was entirely covered with blood. But upon Emily's earnest entreaties that they would proceed, Bertrand, uttering some joke upon the unfortunate person to whom it had belonged, threw it hard upon the ground, and they passed on. At every step she took, Emily feared to see some vestige of death. Coming soon after to an opening in the woods, Bertrand stopped to survey the ground, which was encumbered with massy trunks and branches of the trees that had so lately adorned it, and seemed to have been a spot particularly fatal to the besiegers, for it was evident from the destruction of the trees that here the hottest fire of the garrison had been directed. As Ugo held again forth the torch, steel glittered between the fallen trees. The ground beneath was covered with broken arms, 
and with the torn vestments of soldiers, whose mangled forms Emily almost expected to see, and she again entreated her companions to proceed, who were, however, too intent in their examination to regard her, and she turned her eyes from this desolated scene to the castle above, where she observed lights gliding along the ramparts. Presently the castle clock struck twelve, and then a trumpet sounded, of which Emily inquired the occasion. Oh, they are only changing watch, replied Ugo. I do not remember this trumpet, said Emily. It is a new custom. It is only an old one revived, lady. We always use it in time of war. We have sounded it at midnight, ever since the place was besieged. Hark, said Emily, as the trumpet sounded again, and in the next moment she heard a faint clash of arms, and then the watchword passed along the terrace above, and was answered from a distant part of the castle, after which all was again still. She complained of cold and begged to go on. Presently, lady, said Bertrand, turning over some broken arms with the pike he usually carried. What have we here? Hark! cried Emily. What noise was that? What noise was it? said Ugo, starting up and listening. Hush! repeated Emily. It surely came from the ramparts above, and, on looking up, they perceived a light moving along the walls, while... In the next instant, the breeze swelling, the voice sounded louder than before. "'Who goes yonder?' cried a sentinel of the castle. "'Speak, or it will be worse for you.' Bertrand uttered a shout of joy. "'Ha! My brave comrade, is it you?' said he. And he blew a shrill whistle, which signal was answered by another from the soldier on watch and the party, then passing forward, soon after emerged from the woods upon the broken road that led immediately to the castle gates, and Emily saw, with renewed terror, the whole of that stupendous structure. Alas, said she to herself, I am going again into my prison. Here has been warm work, by St. Marco, cried Bertrand, waving a torch over the ground. The balls have torn up the earth here with a vengeance. Aye, replied Ugo, they were fired from that redoubt yonder, and rare execution they did. The enemy made a furious attack upon the great gates. But they might have guessed they never could carry it there, for besides the cannon from the walls, our archers on the two round towers showered down upon them at such a rate that by holy Peter, there is no standing it. I never saw a better sight in my life. I laughed till my sides ached to see how the knaves scampered. Bertrand, my good fellow, thou shouldst have been among them. I warrant thou wouldst have won the race. Ha, you are at your old tricks again, said Bertrand in a surly tone. It is well for thee thou art so near the castle. Thou knowest I have killed my man before now. Ugo replied only by a laugh, and then gave some further account of the siege, to which, as Emily listened, 
she was struck by the strong contrast of the present scene with that which had so lately been acted here. The mingled uproar of cannons, drums, and trumpets, the groans of the conquered, and the shouts of the conquerors, were now sunk into a silence so profound that it seemed as if death had triumphed alike over the vanquished and the victor. The shattered condition of one of the towers of the great gates by no means confirmed the valiant account just given by Ugo of the scampering party who, it was evident, had not only made a stand, but had done much mischief before they took to flight. For this tower appeared, as far as Emily could judge by the dim moonlight that fell upon it, to be laid open, and the battlements were nearly demolished. While she gazed, a light glimmered through one of the lower loopholes and disappeared. But in the next moment, she perceived through the broken wall a soldier with a lamp ascending the narrow staircase that wound within the tower and remembering that it was the same she had passed up on the night when Barnardine had deluded her with a promise of seeing Madame Montigny. Fancy gave her somewhat of the terror she had then suffered. She was now very near the gates, over which the soldier having opened the door of the portal chamber. The lamp he carried gave her a dusky view of that terrible apartment, and she almost sunk under the recollected horrors of that moment, when she had drawn aside the curtain and discovered the object it was meant to conceal. Perhaps, said she to herself, it is now used for a similar purpose. Perhaps that soldier goes at this dead hour to watch over the corpse of his friend. The little remains of her fortitude now gave way to the united force of remembered and anticipated horrors. For the melancholy fate of Madame Montigny appeared to foretell her own. She considered that, though the Languedoc estates, if she relinquished them, might satisfy Montigny's avarice, they might not appease his vengeance, which was seldom pacified but by a terrible sacrifice. And she thought that, were she to resign them, the fear of justice might urge him either to detain her a prisoner or to take away her life. They were now arrived at the gates, where Bertrand, observing the light glimmer through a small casement of the portal chamber, called aloud, and the soldier, looking out, demanded who was there. Here I have brought you a prisoner, said Ugo. Open the gate and let us in. Tell me first who it is that demands entrance, replied the soldier. What, my old comrade, cried Ugo, don't you know me? Not know Ugo. I have brought home a prisoner here, bound hand and foot, a fellow who has been drinking Tuscany wine, while we here have been fighting. You will not rest till you meet with your match, said Bertrand sullenly. Ha, my comrade, is it you? said the soldier. I'll be with you presently. Emily presently heard his steps descending the stairs within, and then the heavy chain fall, and the bolts undraw of a small postern door, which he opened to admit the party. He held the lamp low, to shew the step at the gate, 
and she found herself once more beneath the gloomy arch and heard the door close that seemed to shut her from the world forever. In the next moment, she was in the first court of the castle, where she surveyed the spacious and solitary area with a kind of calm despair, while the dead hour of the night, the gothic gloom of the surrounding buildings, and the hollow and imperfect echoes which they returned, as Ugo and the soldier conversed together, assisted to increase the melancholy forebodings of her heart. Passing on to the second court, a distant sound broke feebly on the silence, and, gradually swelling louder, as they advanced, Emily distinguished voices of revelry and laughter, but they were, to her, far other than sounds of joy. Why, have you got some Tuscany wine among you here, said Bertrand, if one may judge by the uproar that is going forward? Ugo has taken a larger share of that than of fighting, I'll be sworn. Who is carousing at this late hour? His Excellenza and the Signors, replied the soldier. It is a sign you are a stranger at the castle, or you would not need to ask the question. They are brave spirits that do without sleep. They generally pass the night in good cheer. Would that we who keep the watch had a little of it. It is cold work pacing the rampart so many hours of the night. If one has no good liquor to warm one's heart... Courage, my lad, courage ought to warm your heart, said Hugo. Courage, replied the soldier sharply with a menacing air, which Hugo perceiving prevented his saying more, by returning to the subject of the carousal. This is a new custom, said he. When I left the castle, the signors used to sit up counseling. Aye, and for that matter, carousing too, replied the soldier, but since the siege they have done nothing but make merry. And if I was they, I would settle accounts with myself for all the hard fighting the same way. End of Volume 3, Chapter 8, Part 1